The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, and this episode is the season finale of season one. So I decided I'd do something a little different. Instead of having guests, I thought I'd open myself up to an Ask Me Anything, where I reached out to people across my various different social media channels to ask questions of myself, the program, or things I thought they might want to be curious to learn to unlearn. I have to say, the questions have been pretty diverse and pretty interesting. And the way I'm going to try and answer them is actually put them into a random generator. So the questions are just going to come at me one by one. I'll read out who they're from, the name of the person and the question, and I'll try and answer them to the best of my ability. I'm going to give myself around 25 minutes to do this because one of the questions I always get is about productivity hacks. And one of my favorites is to do the Pomodoro technique, which means you set a timer for 25 minutes and just go and focus on a task at hand. So I'm going to try and use that technique as we work our way through these questions. I hope you have fun. And again, thanks for listening to the show. At the end, I'll also share how I'm planning to iterate what I'm going to do for 2020. So let's get started. First question, what skill would you like to master? Andy in London. Well, personally, it's probably the piano. I often see people playing and I wish I really could. I play guitars and bass and drums, but I've never managed to make it to the piano. And I often harbor this ambition of sitting in a room with a grand piano, just practicing and enjoying myself. From a professional point of view, it's probably pivot tables in Excel. You know, I often work with people who do amazing things in spreadsheets that I could only dream of. Everything from prototyping algorithms to looking up complex information and referencing many sheets at a time. And it's one skill I think that I'm always really envious of and wish I had that ability. So yeah, pivot tables. There you go. What takes up too much of your time? Helen in Melbourne. Noisy notifications. It's either slacks or robocalls in the US. I think all these ideas of interruptions that aren't very specific and take me out of my flow are really frustrating. And, you know, I try everything. I turn off a lot of the prompts to the point where I sort of wonder why I have any of my devices. None of my notifications are turned on in my email or when I'm working. I don't think I've had my phone ring in about three years. But yet I still find ways to get distracted by this constant noise. So again, one of the things, like I said at the top of the show, is like this idea of getting to deep work or focused work is a real important part for me. And a lot of what I try to design is opportunities just to go deep and not to be too much context switching or interrupting when I'm doing it. Um, because the cost is just so high. And obviously, I limit the amount of work and progress I have. How do you measure success for the podcast? Caroline in New York. Well, for anybody who's tried to do podcasting, they'll probably tell you that the analytics on these platforms are pretty weak. In fact, the majority of platforms are still optimizing for radio business models. 
So you'll see people are generally trying to monetize simply by advertising or paid for people attending on shows. And for me, again, this just feels like such a naive use of technology and a constant trap that we always get in with technology is just copying and pasting a business model from a manual or less technology capability advanced world and just shipping it or digitizing it to the future. You know, so I think being aware that a lot of the metrics that you get from these platforms are vanity metrics. They're often counting or just a number of people who've watched or read or which it makes me feel nice. You know, we've been very lucky. The shows continue to grow. Roughly, I can tell that there's about 5% growth for show on show. But I think what I'm more interested in is really like leading outcome-based measures for success. And one of my favorite people to debate metrics with is uh, Gib Biddle. He was VP of Netflix. And we did a show together at the start of this season. And we're often emailing one another with new and interesting ways to measure specific behaviors and outcomes we're aiming for. When I think about my show, I guess one of the leading indicators or outcomes that I know we're going to have a great show is when a guest might say, I've never shared this story before, or I've never thought of it like that. Those moments, and again, this is one of the reasons I really like recording in person is because it really brings like the real and authentic conversations to the table. I often get emails about this from people all the time that they listen to the show and they find it as if they're there, as if they're sitting down with us to listen in on these conversations. And again, these are all feedback mechanisms to me, more qualitative feedback mechanisms. But I know when I'm getting feedback like that, that it is creating great shows that people feel like they're really part of it. Two examples that definitely come to mind are Melissa Perry, when she was sharing how she started the Product Institute from scratch. I think that was such a really interesting story from Melissa about how she sort of practiced what she preaches and identified that by starting to build these videos to teach people very specific product management techniques that she could start to bundle them and scale them up. And she's built a phenomenal business on the back of it. So I think stories like that are really inspiring. And um, Jake Knapp sharing one of his key unlearning moments around design sprints, uh, that sort of moment for him of recognizing that success was really creating the environment for everybody in the team to succeed, not necessarily just his individual skills defining his identity. And I thought that like these sort of stories, I think are just so powerful. And when you listen to them, I think they're really authentic and really give people a boost about what they're trying to both learn and unlearn. What do you wish you knew more about Ronan in Dublin? Space and cosmology, actually. I think so much of our future is going to be based potentially off this planet and definitely working with Ed Hoffman, who was the chief knowledge officer at NASA, has really sparked my curiosity about space and how to explore it, how much or how little we actually know about it. You know, spending time with people like him and his peers is just like going to a science fair with just people who are great at telling stories. And, you know, I'm continuously inspired by even the way Ed can share stories. He's one of these really interesting characters who's seen so much in his role was about making really, really smart people come together to solve really unsolved challenges and tackles them with excellence. 
he would always share that one of the key challenges at NASA is you had lots of smart people, but they were always afraid to make mistakes or share mistakes with one another. And so much of their culture was about creating it safe for people to share mistakes. And obviously, when they had problems, when mistakes weren't shared, they would turn into mishaps and ultimately catastrophes, resulting in the loss of life on some of the space shuttle missions. So I think the way that they really turned that culture around by getting leaders to start role modeling new behaviors and sharing stories where they had made mistakes, but how they had also improved their systems as a result of that, I think is a great learning. And it was definitely one of my favorite parts about writing the book is spending time with him and his team. And we're lucky to say that Ed will be on the show in 2020. So I'm looking forward to sharing that one. What's been the single best day of 2019 and why? Preeti in Bangalore. I think being sent a photo of Serena Williams reading on Learn was pretty awesome, especially because her and her coach Patrick's story was such an inspirational story for me writing the book. And how I even found that story was kind of crazy. And I was just being involved in one of the exec camps in New York City at the airport. You know, it was super cool exec camp. We like lots of senior leaders that were responsible for running and operating the airport. We'd taken over an abandoned business lounge in a part of the uh, the airport and we'd set it all up where we had a sort of war room and we were designing all these experiments and executives are walking out into the airport and like running experiments in real time and it was super fun it was high energy but so much of it just didn't work and it was really tough for me because I was sort of trying to figure out like what was wrong and did I push people too much outside their comfort zone were we not pushing far enough and at the end of that sort of first week, I was you know, sitting on the plane in New York about to fly back to San Francisco. And, you know, I was sort of watching the TV and there was this sort of story about Serena Williams and the sort of trials and tribulations that she had gone through. And much of the things that had made her successful initially in the early part of her career were starting to limit her ability to succeed in the stage that she was at in her career. And I think that was just like such a sort of unlearning moment for me is to recognize like what did I need to start to adapt in myself to make me achieve the outcomes I was aiming for, but also the teams I was working in on these exec camps. And I think that was just a great inspiration moment for me and really nice to sort of close that feedback loop at the start of the year, just after the book had came out and there was Serena preparing for the Australian Open reading on learn and it was a really sort of inspiring and nice sort of closed feedback loop for me it's not often you get those I also enjoy Serena still continues to get to these Grand Slam finals and she's just missing out but I imagine her persistence which again is such a great quality of her is going to be the thing to help her succeed if you could be anywhere in the world right now at this very moment where would you be angel in Hong Kong Hiking in Patagonia is pretty much what comes to mind pretty quickly. Why do I like hiking? Well, every year like we spend so much of our time being distracted and things getting in our way and constant attention economy is like very challenging and frustrating for me. I feel like I never really get to embrace slow thinking as opposed to fast thinking. Daniel Kerderman wrote such a phenomenal book upon so one of the reasons I really like hiking and especially going and doing it for a couple of weeks, either in the summertime or is 
none of your devices work. One of my favorite things this year, I went hiking in Glacier National Park for a couple of weeks. And the best thing was that it was just me with my thoughts, just reflecting and walking and exercising and fresh air and amazing, amazing things to see. It's one of the most amazing parts of the world I've ever seen. And it just gave me such inspiration, such great time to reflect. And I think anywhere where you're sort of in those moments of being outside, have a chance to reflect, like beautiful scenery, exercising, everything sort of fell into place when I do these activities. So definitely at various different times of the year, I really like to do digital detoxing or just get myself away from my day to day and have time to reflect. And I think hiking around these places, especially national parks, are, are a great way for me to do that. What's the most counterintuitive skill to unlearn? Simon in San Francisco. I think one of the most counterintuitive, or maybe just a, a taboo, I think, that really needs to be debunked is the concept of coaching. Now, often, you know, when I talk to people inside organizations, coaching is often this odd taboo where people see it as an issue or only people who are being performance managed or underperforming are the ones that need coaching. You know, I often get a lot of pushback from leaders who believe like, well, why, why are you here telling or working with me? You know, I'm, I'm an expert in my field. I know all these different things. And yet I think counterintuitively, what I continuously find is the highest performers actually have coaching or seek out people to coach them or recognize areas of their skills or behaviors that are lacking or they want to improve. So they actively seek coaching to sort of not, not necessarily tell them what to do, but give them a great reflection tool or get people to observe their behavior or notice things that are blind spots for them or and offer options about how they could try and something different, accelerate things that are working or areas that you might want to stop and reevaluate. You know, personally, for me, uh, coaching has been probably one of the best investments I've made in myself in the last number of years. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking for people to coach or mentor or help me in areas that I'm trying to develop. It's like starting a business is one challenge in itself. Like I said, there's other areas I need to grow about my own skills and capabilities. And often it's difficult for me to see those. And I think having a coach helps me not only identify the outcomes I'm aiming for, but really challenges or reflects back to me sometimes the things that I'm saying that are sometimes not obvious to me. And I think it's been one of the biggest breakthroughs I've had. Uh, I couldn't encourage people enough to sort of embrace that idea and actively look for coaching to help you improve. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is nearly impossible for me. What do you do to actively get uncomfortable? Kirsty in Helsinki. Well, Kirsty, it's very interesting that you say this because I'm probably one of these people where if I'm not doing something uncomfortable, probably makes me uncomfortable. And if anything, I'm probably feeling that from one of your country women, Katri Harris-Solomon, who's the chief digital officer of Finnair. When I first sat down to speak with Katri, we were sort of talking about these different ideas of how do you get uncomfortable being uncomfortable? And 
I think one of the sort of aha moments when I spent time with her was her saying that point, like she's real interested in creating experiences or opportunities for her to do things differently. And it was really inspiring to listen to her talk about her career and how she's moved from various different modalities from doing consulting to working inside organizations, from being in startups to shifting to large scale organizations and brands like Finair, which she continues to do. And I think those sort of senses within yourself where you feel like, am I going into autopilot or am I having automatic responses, I think is often a thing I sort of look out for in myself. And I think that really stood out with Catherine. The other one that really jumps to mind is actually with Kent Beck. And what I love about Kent was not only was he the first person we had on the show, but he is such a great character and just lives his life to the fullest. And my favorite point from speaking with him is he always says, whenever I hear an idea that I hate, that I radically disagree with, that I just think is absolutely wrong, the first thing I have to do is try it. And what I love about that sort of mindset is it really gets you to sort of embrace things that are counterintuitive. It challenges your thinking. It challenges your belief system. But more importantly, you get evidence by trying, by giving something a go and seeing what actually works and what doesn't, and not allowing your expertise to become a blind spot. If anything, it's just going to make your thinking and your beliefs more resilient as you test those beliefs regularly and get outside your comfort zone. So I think both of those two people and examples were real inspiration for me in that question. So the thing I'd be asking you to think about is if you're trying to get a little bit uncomfortable, you know, think about a small step you can take. And again, one of the great tips one of my coaches gave me about how I could start to sort of learn to unlearn is she would always ask me on sort of a scale of one to 10, write down a challenge or an area that I feel like I needed to focus on. And then find somebody I know or trust and ask them to sort of score me on a scale of one to 10 about how well I'm performing on that challenge or my existing behavior is performing on that challenge. And then when they give me a score, often they'll give me about a four, I'd be like, okay, so how could I just get half a point better? And again, when you invite people to give you that sort of feedback, a lot of the things they might come back to you with, some of them may feel very comfortable, but others might feel quite uncomfortable. And um, so what I would always encourage you is then like pick something that feels like just on the edge of your comfort zone. And because this is somebody you trust, there's safety there and you can explain to them that you're trying to improve and embrace aspects that might be more uncomfortable for you. And just getting half a point better means you're just trying to improve a little bit and make them aware of that. And then pick one of those behaviors that's slightly uncomfortable, try it for a week, and then catch up with that person again and ask them for feedback, not only with how you've performed, but it would also give you a little bit of feeling of success that you've tried something different or you started to embrace getting a little bit more uncomfortable by starting small. And I think that's a really important part to think about. What's the most important quality to cultivate to unlearn? Uh, this is Gina in Mumbai. Well, when I talk about the different qualities to cultivate, to unlearn, there's generally five. Curiosity, ownership, commitment, comfort with being uncomfortable and creating safety to succeed. 
when someone asks me, like, which is the most important of all these, it's really difficult to just identify one. But there's a reason that I sort of describe them in the way that I do. I think curiosity is so key is because that's how open are you to taking in information that runs contrary to much of your existing mental models or mindset and thinking. The classic example I often use is when you give people tasks to do that you know how to do and they start to solve it differently, what's your initial reaction? Is it to tell them that they're doing it wrong or, and to fix them? Because if that's the case, you're sort of shutting down these opportunities to learn, to be challenged, to unlearn, essentially. You know, and there's a great example, I think, from Joe Narenia at HSBC, where he would talk about our CEO of the whole global trading group at HSBC would sit down with the graduates and ask them to solve problems that he was working on that day to see how they would do it. You know, and often they will solve things in ways or tools that he wouldn't even be familiar with. And I think that's a great sort of cultural artifact of an organization like that, where it's very hierarchical, bureaucracy heavy, massive organization. And you've got the most senior people in the bank sitting down with some of the most junior learning to unlearn or seeing how they're being or tackling new problems, which I think is a great step and showcase of curiosity. Ownership then is such a key point because quite simply, if you're not going to own the results, if you're not going to look at yourself and say, what could I do differently? When I was sitting on that plane, flying back from New York at the end of the week one of the exec camp, and I had to own it. I had to own that we were not living up to the expectations that I'd set for myself or the outcomes we were aiming for with the camp. And I think, again, that was a huge unlearning moment for me. And until I could really own that, I couldn't improve that. And I think it's really important. Commitment is always this idea that you're going to have to try things that you suck at. You know, that's what persistence and deliberate practice is all about. Getting into the habit of just constantly practicing trying new things is such an important skill. We're constantly going to face more uncertainty and tackle new challenges. So doing that in your work, I think, is super powerful and, and practicing it. And as I said, I've just spoken about comfort with being uncomfortable and why safety is so important. If you can adopt these sort of principles, I think it can be super powerful to help you start to cultivate on learning in yourself. You know, again, just scale it back, pick one, maybe curiosity, something you want to work on or ownership and really focus on that and start from there and build. It's often said that the biggest blocker to success is fear. How do you unlearn fear? Adrian in Johannesburg. Well, I think this is why this thought of like thinking big, but starting small is so important. You know, the power of starting small, I think, cannot be emphasized enough. If anything, it's probably the toughest point for most people to adopt as they start to unlearn. Because small often means way, way, way smaller than people think. And when you're working on these big initiatives, counterintuitively, success is not about scaling up your efforts. It's actually how much you can descale your efforts. How small can you make things and get them done or start to start to feel success for starting, for taking a small step and finding out what works and what doesn't by trying new things and recognizing your ability to attempt is way more powerful than the result you get initially. 
and then continuing to try and test and improve and get better. I think my favorite example of this was probably Schneehal's story from working at Apple. When she was building products and services, she actually didn't know what these services were going to do. You know, she was writing these search algorithms to understand and look up various different components, but they never really know what exactly they're working on, often until some of the end of year releases. And when you're working in these highly uncertain domains, when you're tackling challenges that maybe have never been solved before, the power of starting small, the power of continuously doing small releases, small steps, shows progress, helps the team feel successful that they're succeeding, that they're moving in potentially the desired direction and getting feedback and building momentum. All these steps are related to addressing fear or more importantly, tackling uncertainty. Because the more evidence you can create with these small steps, that change is happening, that progress is being made with tight and fast feedback loops that you can learn if the steps you're taking are even moving in the direction you believe is correct, to feel successful. All of these are sort of the antidote to fear because they create evidence of change. And I think that's probably one of the most powerful moments I would really encourage people to dial into is the power of small is the best antidote to fear because it creates belief, it shows evidence, and it makes it safe to fail. By taking small steps, you learn quickly what works and what doesn't, and that allows you to improve. What's your biggest irrational fear? Song in Shanghai. Well, personally, it's probably heights. I remember when we first moved to San Francisco, we went for a run over the Golden Gate Bridge because, you know, that's a thing you should do when you come to San Francisco. And I reckon I beat my mile time by about 40% because once I got on that bridge, I did not look back. I just ran. I don't even think I looked around me. I just ran over the bridge. And I still remember people that were with me were like yards behind me when we finished. I think I was nearly over the bridge and they might have been halfway simply because of my fear heights. So that's one of my biggest irrational fears, potentially. When I think about my biggest irrational fear from a professional perspective, I'd probably say going remote first and believing it would hurt my business, where in actuality, if anything, it's only made it stronger. And I think speaking with Stefan Kasrael, who's the CEO of Workwork, really sort of reminded me of this. We're in a society now where we're much more connected, where technology is advancing, where our connectivity is in many ways overabundant. And in many ways, as I said before, our attention economy gets in our way because of our connectivity. But also the flip side of that is it allows us to connect and work and collaborate with people in ways that we've never dreamed we could do before. And I think for me, as a company of one, with a global business and clients all over the world. Most of my clients aren't ever in the same place all the time. Certainly the executive or leadership teams aren't. So this ability or this principle I have of operating remote first with my business has been actually a huge breakthrough for me. And it's allowed me to scale both my availability and my impact globally and work with people all over the world from these multinational and really interesting organizations. So I think this notion that we have to move people to the work actually needs to be unlearned. And really what we should be thinking about is moving work to where the people are. 
And everybody who collaborates with me in my business, all my partners are gig workers or remote first workers. Very few people are in the same city, never mind the same country. And if anything, I found it to be a massive competitive advantage because I have found the most amazing partners all over the world who are deep experts in their field. They just prefer not to live in San Francisco or London or New York or Shanghai or wherever it is for you. And I think we're only going to see that trend get stronger and stronger. And for me, it was definitely or what feels like an irrational fear now. If anything, I wish I'd done it sooner. What's the best metric you've heard this year and why? Akira in Singapore. Well, the best metric I heard is actually only in the last week. I was in Sydney and spending time with Don Price, who's the head of future work for Atlassian. And he had this great metric where he was telling me when he first joined the company seven years ago, he sat down with his boss at the time and they said to him, or we're planning to grow 40% year on year for the next 10 years. That means you're going to have to get 40% better, not just next year, but every year for the next 10 years. And you know what? He said when you got told that, it was one of these moments where his mind just sort of exploded, where he sat there and went, hang on a sec, I'm doing everything I can to try and get better. And yet I'm going to have to get 40% better, not just this year, but every year. So I'm going to have to keep adapting and changing and finding out new systems to work as we scale. And it was just such a fun, interesting way to describe what growth is like. Not necessarily forced growth because the company has those aspirations, but personal growth. If you were to start thinking about yourself and how do you get 40% better every year? I just thought it was a really great framing and a really sort of good statement of writing an unlearning statement, knowing that you're going to try and push yourself to keep getting better 40% every year. What would you keep doing? What would you stop doing? How would you have to evolve? What systems would you have to evolve? How do you move decision-making down through the people you work with? How do you find the right people to bring into the team that can do things better than you, that are more inept in certain parts than you are? So I think these were like really great, interesting examples that really stood out for me. And I just thought that was a great, great metric. And one I'm hoping to adopt and put more forward in my thinking and dashboard. What's the best piece of advice you have been given? You go in Tokyo. And I wrote a blog on entrepreneurship, actually, while I was visiting uh, Raijanji in Kyoto which is one of the world's most famous temples. People might be familiar with it, that stones are placed around this uh, Zen garden that only 14 or 15 are visible at any one time. So it's said to attain enlightenment, eventually you'll be able to see all 15 at one time. And believe me, I've sat in there for quite a few hours and I still could only see 14. But I think when I was writing that blog, it was sort of my first year of running the business uh, myself. And it was a really great reflection for me. But I think the key lesson that I took from that, and I should definitely revisit that blog, is you just don't get one shot. There is actually many. And I think many people mistakenly believe that you only have one shot at success. You know, that introduction, that meeting, the deal. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. 
You see, entrepreneurship for me is about life. Life is about growth through learning experiences. Sometimes things have gone really well. Sometimes they haven't, you know, and what I've found is the trick is just to sort of pick yourself up, dust yourself down and get ready for your next shot for when it comes around, because it will come around. One of the great inspirations for me was my cousin, Philip, who was an entrepreneur and both grew, scaled, lost, rescaled and lost his businesses many times over. And it was a real inspiration for me that he always would say, you know, if you're still breathing, you haven't failed. Make sure you learn something for the next spin and go get inspired and do it again. So there you go. I think I answered 13 questions. It's always good to end on a prime number, just like this episode is 19 of the first series. It's been super fun to do this podcast. I've learned so much from spending time with these people and have taken lots on that I need to unlearn as a result. Next year, we're going to be iterating the show. I'm really going to start trying to bring a much broader base of character to the show. I'm going to invite people who are working in fields like medicine, public health, really start to show a broader breadth of people in various different industries, not just technology industries and not just product or technology departments about how they're going on their journey to learn to unlearn. It's been a real pleasure that you've tuned in and listened to the show on season one. I'm always looking for feedback. Don't be afraid to reach out and share it with me. Another thing you can do, one small step that has a massive impact. If you've enjoyed the show, Just rate and review it online on your favorite player. Share it with one other person over the holiday season. I think this is a great way to start to scale these lessons as we all learn to unlearn. Have a great holiday season. I'll see you back next year. Thanks very much, folks.